0: Have you ever thought you knew someone only to find out you didn't know them well at all that's how many of vicki white's co-workers felt over the past few years or past few weeks when the woman they'd known for nearly 20 years who many of them described as a model employee the woman who'd risen through the ranks to the title of assistant director of corrections for Lauderdale County, Alabama, and was on the brink of retiring from this illustrious career, this woman turned out to be a completely different person than what many of them thought. They found that out on April 29th as she orchestrated and executed a jailbreak, freeing her secret prison romance. Inmate Casey White and leading authorities on a two-week manhunt that made National headlines and ultimately led to his recapture and her death. Sometimes this mistaken identity or misinformed identity takes place not at the national level, but more narrowly in your life, at the local level, in your own home maybe you dated the person you're now married to for a number of months or years. You talked countless hours on the phone late into the night. You went on countless dates. You were in a a number of different scenarios with different friend groups in different seasons of life. You'd done all your homework. You thought you knew him or her well. But when you said I do, and y'all moved into the same house and started sharing the same living space and sharing the same things, you discovered some new information. Did you always eat so loudly? Walk so hard? Talk so much? It's not that you didn't know anything about them at all, but you soon found out that you didn't know all about them. That's something of what we find in our passage this morning. Concerning a person more important than a co-worker and more significant than a spouse. Jesus Christ himself. Who is he? As we'll see in our text shortly, people throughout the ages have had different, sometimes half-truth ideas about him. But God wants us to know the whole truth about who Jesus is. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. As we continue our study through Matthew's gospel, and this morning we'll look at verses 41 through 46. Matthew chapter 22, this morning we'll look at verses 41 through 46. If you need a Bible, you can find one under your chairs, and on those Bibles, or in those Bibles, it'll be on page 800 and 28. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily understand, take this one under your chairs as our gift to you. We would love nothing more than for you to have your own copy of God's Word to follow along, all right? And perhaps you're here this morning and you're totally new to the Bible, right? We don't want to assume, right? So the chapter number will be the big number. So on 828, you'll see a big 23. That means everything before that is chapter 22. And then those small numbers are the verse numbers, right? So we're going to look at the small number 41 through the small number 46 on page 828. Matthew tells us this in this passage. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the the son of David, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Look at this passage. Here's what I think is the main idea, the main point of verses 41 through 46 of Matthew chapter 22. You won't get Jesus right unless you get who Jesus truly is. God and man Come to rescue us. You won't get Jesus right unless you get who Jesus truly is. God and man come to rescue us. As we study this passage this morning, we'll see those those two natures of Christ, his human and divine nature, highlighted in two points. So, two points to the sermon. Number one, Jesus is the son of David. We see that in verses 41 and 42. And point number two, Jesus is the son of God. We see that in verses 43 through 46. It's a pretty simple outline. I think you kind of see this clearly in the text. I hope you see it at the end of the text, that these two ideas are kind of the two uh, main columns that, that Matthew kind of wants us to lean in on. Number one, Jesus is the son of, son of David. And number two, Jesus is the son of God. First, Jesus is the son of David. That's the answer to this question that Jesus poses to the Pharisees at the beginning of this passage. Now, it's striking that it's Jesus asking the question. If you remember back to previous weeks, on three previous encounters in this chapter, it's been the religious leaders the Pharisees and the Sadducees questioning him in an attempt to entrap him. So, so if you look at your Bibles there, flip, flip back to, to verse 15, and we read that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words and asked him a question in verse 17 about whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Turn back over to to verse 23, and we see it's the Sadducees now who who come to him asking about resurrection. And then down in verses 34 and 35, it's the Pharisees again circling back around, gathered together, asking about which of the commandments was the greatest. But now Jesus flips the script— After answering every one of their questions with divine wisdom, Jesus now questions the questioners. And and notice the substance of his question. It's the most important question one can ask. The most important question the Pharisees and Sadducees, you and me, need to ponder, need to have an answer for. It doesn't revolve revolve around civilian or political matters, uh, such as the Pharisees' question about paying taxes to Caesar. It doesn't revolve around uh, bogus scenarios, uh, such as the one the Sadducees presented in trying to disprove the concept of a resurrection. Seven men all marry the same woman and none of them have a child. Which one will, will be her husband in the resurrection? It doesn't revolve around weighing which commandments were more important than the others, which was the the Pharisees' purpose in asking Jesus which commandment was the greatest, as if you could push any to the side. No, the question that Jesus asked gets to the crux of the matter, the most important thing that we all must consider. All these other things that they've been asking him are really on the periphery in a sense, Uh, not unimportant, but just not most important. The most important thing for them and us to consider revolves around salvation. And so Jesus asked in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ, the Savior? Now, we've said this before, but repetition often removes confusion and results in clarity, so we'll say it again. Christ is not Jesus' last name. We must say that because it kind of feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, we say Jesus Christ so much that it, it just kind of runs off our lips like LeBron James or Tiger Woods. But Christ is not Jesus' equivalent of Johnson or Jones or Smith. It's not his last name, it's his title. Jesus is the Christ. Notice he asked, What do you think about the Christ? Christ is a title that carries all kinds of messianic meaning. It literally means the anointed one in the original Greek, or the Messiah in the original Hebrew. In the Old Testament, it was understood to refer to the one that God promised would come, and as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the anointed king, rescue God's people, save them. So when asking these Jewish religious leaders about the Christ, Jesus was asking them something they would have been incredibly familiar with. Someone they'd waited for for so long. A savior, a a rescuer. They didn't think Jesus was him, but they were anxiously anticipating his arrival. What do you think about the Christ? It's a question that just assumes that every pious Jew would have been thinking about him. But what about us today? What do we think about the Christ? Or do we not think of him at all? Where is the Messiah in your mind, in your thoughts, on a day-to-day basis? Is he non-presence? Why don't you think about a Savior? Is it because you don't think you need to be saved? And perhaps your standard of morality especially compared to others, has convinced you that you're a good person. You don't drink, don't smoke, don't gamble, don't dance, don't watch Netflix, don't play video games, don't do nothing but love the Lord. Those people are the ones that need to be saved, not you. You're okay. Or maybe you won't be as bold as to say you're sinless or even a good person. You know yourself to be a sinner, but it's your spouse's sin that's really bad. It's your parents' sins that are really evident. It's, it's their sins that are really on display. They really need Christ, while functionally, you act as if you're in the clear. I mean, maybe even right now, as you're sitting in these chairs, you're thinking about other people in our church. Other people in your family who really need to hear this message about Jesus. Not you. Why don't you think about a Savior? Is it because you love your sin? You enjoy satisfying every desire of your flesh. You like the way it makes you feel when you curse somebody somebody out for cutting you off. When you tear somebody down with a text or a tweet for disagreeing with you when you sleep with him or her to satisfy your sexual cravings. You can't or don't want to think about a Savior because it will inevitably mean confessing that you have sins that you need to be saved from. Why don't you think about a Savior? Is it because your schedule, your ambitions, the demands of everyday life have pushed other concerns Even eternal concerns out of your mind? I mean, I'm confronted with this every day. As a pastor of this church, in some ways paid to think about spiritual things, it is a constant temptation to be consumed in doing stuff, fixing stuff, helping people, preparing sermons about Christ, without personally sitting and meditating and thinking about Christ. Friends, consider it a kindness from the Lord to us today to reorient our minds and cause us to squarely face this question this morning. What do you think about the Christ? Maybe even right now you can jot down one word or one phrase that comes to your mind in response to that question. One attribute about Jesus. One action that he's performed. Train yourself to think about him. Uh, maybe you make it a point not to check your emails or social media in the morning before you think about one thing about Jesus. Perhaps put a, a sticky note on your bathroom mirror or on your desk or on your steering wheel with a verse about Jesus Christ so that throughout your day you're constantly thinking about him. He's worthy. Of our constant contemplation explicitly here jesus asked the pharisees specifically what they think about the christ in terms of his lineage he asked in verse 42 whose son is he it's a question about the messiah's ancestry where does he come from to the pharisees the the trained religious scholars it, it was a rather easy question I mean, the questions they'd ask Jesus involved some intrigue, some complexities, or, or so they thought. But the question that Jesus asked them is comparatively a layup. Whose son is the Christ? Easy, the, the, the son of David, they respond. I mean, every Jew knew that. Well, they knew it because that's what the scriptures said. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, God made a covenant with David, promising that one of his offspring, a son, would come and reign forever. Now, God did raise up David's sons, Solomon and others after him, to rule for a while. But this promise that one of David's sons would rule forever was the promise of the coming Messiah, the Christ. It would be a human being, a son who would come and rescue God's people and rule over them perfectly for all time. You see that that theme of a coming son to save traced throughout the Bible. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God promises a seed a son in Genesis 3.15, who would come and redeem humanity from sin by crushing Satan. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises that through his seed, a son, all the families of the earth would be blessed. In Exodus, God enters into a covenant with Israel as a nation whom he collectively calls his son, that through them, redemption might come to all peoples. But Israel sinned miserably, and so God again narrowed the scope and makes a covenant with David that through his seed, through his son, salvation would come. There would be a human figure through whom God would redeem his people and reign over them. In this much, the Pharisees believed. They were looking for this human Messiah to rescue them what they missed was that the human right before their eyes speaking to them at this very moment was the Messiah, was the Christ. If they missed it, Matthew, the author of this book, doesn't want us to miss it. I mean, if you look back at the first verse of the first chapter of of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew starts off the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. And then he goes on to list Jesus' lineage in the family line of King David. And several times throughout this book, Matthew records the words that come from the lips of people looking for Jesus to heal them. They continually cry out to him, Have mercy on us, O son of David. Jesus is the son of David, the human Messiah, the Christ. Friends, that's important for us to believe, to remember. Jesus is not some fictional figure. He's not a person of our imagination that's been created to captivate audiences for, for thousands of years and give humanity a sense of hope in the midst of, of brokenness, but who really never existed. No, he is a real human being, he was born into a real family. And that family had a real history, a history that could be traced all the way back to his forefathers and the royal throne of King David. Had Jesus not been in this family line, he could not be the Messiah. He would automatically have been disqualified, just as you and I are automatically disqualified from ever serving as king or queen of England. We don't come from the right family line. But Jesus does. In his birth and with his background, we see all of God's plans beginning to be fulfilled. David's son will reign forever. Jesus is at least David's son. Could he be the one? The recognition of the Christ as David's son recognizes the Messiah's humanity a factor that cannot be overlooked. Other passages tell us that the Messiah, if he would truly be a savior, had to be made like us in every way. He had to share in flesh and blood so that he could make propitiation for our sins. He had to be made like us, suffering temptation yet never sinning so that he could be a sympathetic high priest and help us when we are tempted. He had to be made like us, a real human being so that he could do what humanity was supposed to do, live obediently to God as a faithful son, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law and condemning sin in the flesh. The Christ had to be a man, a descendant of David, to fulfill the scriptures and to fulfill God's purposes for humanity, And to make up for every instance where we failed. What do you think about the Christ? We must confess with the Pharisees that he is the son of David. And unlike the Pharisees, we must confess that Jesus is his name. He is a man, a king, the Messiah born from David's line. Oh, but we must confess more than that because Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, is more than that. More than just a man, more than just the son of David, he is the son of God. That brings us to point number two, Jesus is the son of God. You can just tell that Jesus is not fully satisfied with the Pharisee's answer to his initial question because he asked a follow-up question. It's not that That the Pharisees answered that the Christ was the son of David was inaccurate, but it was inadequate. There was more that needed to be said. And so Jesus asked in verses 43 through 45, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him, the Messiah, Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I Uh, put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay, now the question gets more complex, right? It's something of a theological riddle. The assertion that the Messiah is David's son is right, but only half right. There's another side to the Messiah's identity, a side that David himself seemed to understand. Jesus, as he does so very often in Matthew's gospel refers to scripture to a passage in psalm chapter 110 verse one a psalm written by David if you turn back to psalm 110 what you see there is a superscription and an inscription the first thing you see it says a psalm of David friends those inscriptions are not throwaway in the earliest and best manuscripts of the Old Testament, they are actually embedded in the inspired text as verse 1. In other words, when Jesus read his Hebrew Bible, when the Pharisees read their Hebrew Bible, and they read Psalm 110, verse 1 started off a Psalm of David. And so Jesus here, when he's about to quote psalm 110 confidently asserts that david said these things david's authorship of psalm 110 is important we'll we'll circle back to that in a minute but notice that it's not just david who wrote psalm 110 yes david wrote but he wrote jesus says in verse 43 in the spirit Friends, this is Jesus Christ himself confirming the doctrine that we know as the inspiration of Scripture. That is, that the words of this book, every single word of this book, yes, they are written by men, but also written by God. They are written by men who were divinely inspired. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says here? David wrote in the Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if you're here this morning and claiming that the Bible is just written by a bunch of men and so You use that as as grounds for you rejecting it. Just know what you're doing. Calling Jesus a liar. You're doing the same thing these religious leaders in Matthew keep doing. Challenging Jesus. It's significant here that, that Jesus, when referring to Psalm 110, intentionally inserts that little phrase, David in the spirit, in this place. Why is it significant? Well, because Jesus is out to show that, that, that the Christ, that he is not only human, but divine. That the Christ is not only the son of David, but also the son of God. And almost discreetly here, he shows how that can even be possible. Well, look at the very scriptures themselves. They come from man and God. No Pharisee would deny that Psalm 110 was written by David. And no Pharisee would deny that Psalm 110 was God's word. Well, so with the Christ. Use that same logic, Pharisees. The Pharisees have affirmed the human nature of Christ. But Jesus is meaning to point to his divine nature as well. And so he uses even this, this instance to show that the scriptures are of human and divine nature. So with the Christ. How is it that David in the Spirit calls the Messiah Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In Psalm 110, verse 1, which verse 44 is quoting, that first instance of Lord there is referring to God, to Yahweh, God's divine covenant name. So if you look back at Psalm 110, the the word Lord is in all caps to to refer to to, to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Every Israelite would have have known that, that this God was over and above them as the Lord God Almighty. But then David refers to another Lord. One he refers to as my Lord. And again, every Israelite would have no problem affirming another Lord besides Yahweh over them in a sense. Maybe a boss or a teacher or if nothing else, the king of Israel. Every Israelite that is, except David. Because David was the king. The highest figure in Israel. The greatest king in Israel's history. Yet, King David, exalted David, writing this verse, says there is one who is over me. Not just Yahweh, the Lord, but also another who is my Lord. Who is he? Well, he's the Messiah. The Christ that David, too, was looking forward to and pointing forward to. Uh, Listen to how Peter, in Acts chapter 2, talks about David's ministry and his writing. In in Acts 2, verse 30, Peter says that David Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David, writing in the Spirit, prophesied about Jesus here, the Christ. When he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. For the Christ to be at the right hand of God was a place of privilege and honor. I mean, subjects stand at the outer courts, waiting to be summoned by the king to approach him. But the Christ shares the throne with God, seated with him at his right hand. But how could this be if the Christ is merely David's son? I mean, David would never call one of his physical descendants his Lord. In that society, the father was always shown greater honor. The son would never be considered greater. And certainly a mere human descendant, a human Messiah even, as great as he was, could never share the throne of God. I mean, it's God himself who says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. But here, the glory of the very throne of God is given to another. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. How could this be? Except that this Lord, this Messiah, this Christ that David spoke of is not totally another, but of the same essence and the same substance as God himself. Not just David's son, but God's son. Of the same essence, sharing the same attributes, having the same authority, having the same glory as God the Father himself. It's what the Pharisees missed about the Messiah. He wasn't just human, but divine. The Christ wasn't just a man, but also God. I mean, consider Peter's response a few chapters earlier in this book. When Jesus asked him a similar question as the one he asked the Pharisees about his identity. He asked them, who do you say that I am in Matthew 16, 15? Peter responded a verse later, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A response to which Jesus said God himself had revealed to Peter from heaven as the correct response to who Jesus was. The man standing before Peter was the Christ, the son of the living God. The the Messiah promised to Adam and Eve a son from Eve's seed, the son promised to Abraham to bless the nations. The son promised to David to sit on his throne forever was not just a human son, but would be the son of God. Amen. We heard it read for us earlier in, Matthew, in Isaiah chapter 9. As Isaiah predicted, the Messiah is coming. Unto us a child is born. Uh, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But how can a son born be also called Mighty God? Well, that son born is God the Son, who eternally existed but became a man 2,000 years ago, was born into the world to bear our sins and to to take away our shame, to die in our place, and to rise from the grave, and to ascend into heaven, and to sit down at the right hand of God, victorious over sin and Satan and the grave, waiting as the Father puts all his enemies under his feet. David wrote about Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who came to be our Messiah, die for our sins, to reconcile us to God. And now as the risen and ruling Lord on the throne of God the Father, seated at his right hand, he commands us all to turn away from our allegiance to sin and to put our faith entirely upon him to save us. Friends, there's nothing more important for you to do today than that. To repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning. You must do that this morning. That is, if you believe what's being said about Jesus here is true. Because if Jesus is God become man to save you, then you cannot say no to him. At least not without incurring judgments. I mean, if Jesus is just a man, a great man, but a man nonetheless, then he doesn't really hold any ultimate authority over you can't really do much to you but if he is not just man but also God and has gone to such great depths as to put on human flesh and to live in a sin-filled world and to be humiliated by being crucified on a Roman cross in front of everybody to save you if he's done all that and you say no to him if you reject him then you can be assured of a devastating judgment. I mean, God the Father promises His Son that He will put His enemies under His feet. He will crush them. And friends, make no mistake about it. There are only two statuses as it relates to Jesus. Family or enemy. If you trust Him... You are united with them in a new spiritual family. But if you reject him, if you live life your own way, if you treat Jesus like he's just another dude out there asking you to buy something or try something, God has promised he will judge you as his ultimate enemy. He will crush you under Christ's feet. So what do you think about the Christ? Do your thoughts of Jesus only rise to the level of attributing humanity to him? Do you only say with the Pharisees, he's the son of David? Or do you follow all the scripture's teachings that the Christ is also God, the son of God? Saints, it matters what we believe about Jesus. And it matters not simply in what we profess. If you're a member of Temple Hills Baptist Church, I trust that you believe that Jesus is both God and man. To become a member of THBC, you've had to have agreed to believe that, to affirm that. If you no longer believe that, you need to talk to me immediately after service. That is serious. But there's a difference between simply affirming the two natures of who Jesus is and living as if they're true. So so do you live as if Jesus is God? Do you love him? One commentator makes the astute connection that the previous passage in this chapter tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. Well, if God is not just a divine blob or idea, but God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit— and implicitly here reveals Jesus, the Son of God, as God, then we are commanded to love the Lord Jesus. So do you love Him? How do you demonstrate your love for Him? Well, you spend time with Christ and His Word and prayer. You say no to the sins that, that Christ hates out of devotion to Him. Not because they aren't appealing at all, but because Jesus is more appealing. You come to church as you've come today, setting aside time to worship Jesus Christ with your other brothers and sisters. You give sacrificially to make Christ known. One of the greatest checks on what you love most is to look where you spend your money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If Jesus Christ is God, and as his followers, we bear his name as Christians, then what courage and comfort we can take, knowing that in all our efforts to strive for holiness and to flee temptation and to fight sin and to evangelize and to disciple, none other than God himself is with us. If Jesus Christ is God, what joy we can have even in the midst of sorrow and hardships, knowing that God is for us. He was once against us because our sins separated him from us and we earned God's wrath, but Jesus took on our sins and died in our place to satisfy God's wrath. But if Jesus was just a man, we could have no guarantee that that wrath was satisfied, that it was paid in full, As a mere man, he wouldn't have the capacity to consume all the colossal condemnation cast down from the King of Heaven. But as God the Son, he was able to fully satisfy the wrath of God so that no wrath remains for us. So we can wake up on those metaphorical, mystical mornings or misty mornings when the sun don't shine and the rain seemingly continues to fall, when constant news of sickness and death plague our thoughts and threaten to plunge us into despair, when sadness and melancholy stubbornly meet us in the midst of messy marriages or seasons of singleness or barrenness and tempt us towards hopelessness, in all those instances we can be sorrowful, beloved, but also rejoicing, Because in every single second of every single day, in every single season, this much is always true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the condemnation that was ours was poured out on Christ, the Son of God, who exhausted it it for us. So there's no condemnation left for those who are in him. So we can be assured that none of the hardships that come to us are signs of God's judgment or wrath. None of them are meant for our harm, but only for our ultimate good. God the Son has assured us of that. By his sacrificial death and resurrection and ascension and seating at the Father's right hand, his work for us is finished, and God is completely satisfied with it. Sit at my right hand, son. You see, what you think about the Messiah has massive implications for all of life. If Jesus is just a man, then as men and women, we are still dead in our sins, still needing to be delivered, still trusting in our own works and our own interpretations of life to help us out. But if Jesus is both God and man, then all has been accomplished for us. And there's reason for hope and for joy and for peace and to worship him. What do you think about the Christ? Verse 46 tells us that the Pharisees weren't able to give an adequate answer. Couldn't reconcile a human and a divine Messiah. Or maybe they weren't willing to. Saints, don't you fall in that same category. Trust what the scriptures say about Jesus Christ. Because you won't get Jesus right unless you get who Jesus truly is. God and man come to rescue us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the highlight you put on Jesus. Jesus. We thank you that you have shown us who Christ truly is, not just a man, but the God-man who's come to rescue us. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see who he is, to love him for who he is, to tell others who he is. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake.